Today's podcast is brought to you by Stakeum, the only product that actually cares about the pandemic. The health and safety of this great nation is our passion. While our product destroys public health, our tweets help strengthen it. Wash your hands, then use those hands to open a box of Stakeum. Seriously, we need you idiots to stay virus-free so we can continue to pump you full of delicious leathery meat. I'll give it to you straight, this ain't looking good. I wonder if the history books will say that humankind did all they could. Of course I am assuming that someone will be here to carry on what we began, that people don't disappear. But I believe this is a start. The future is Welcome to the Justin News Podcast. My name is Justin Cross, and today my guest, he is a journalist and senior contributor for The Appeal. It's a criminal justice website you guys got to check out. He's also a former writer for GQ. Actually, maybe even current writer. We'll, we'll ask him about that in just a second. Jay Willis, thanks for being my guest. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jay, uh, before we get to, uh, you know, obviously I wanted to talk to you today about criminal justice and certainly like the, the deep south where I currently live in Mississippi, some of the stuff that's happening in the prisons down here in, in neighboring Alabama. But before we get to the fucked upness of our criminal justice system, uh, could you please just catch listeners up on why Peter from The Bachelor is what's wrong with reality TV? Oh my goodness. I'm so glad you asked about <laughs> what, I would, what, what I would describe as one of the most pressing stories in journalism and in modern pop culture today. Uh, <laughs> Peter is really bad at being The Bachelor. Um, sort of the first and I would argue maybe the only rule of breaking up with people is when you do it like don't try and explain yourself nobody wants to hear it just do it and move on and this man was constitutionally incapable of doing that um, he, he broke up with one woman and as he walked her to the limousine he said boy I bet you didn't see that coming at all like he was like color commentating his own relationship wonders it was, it was just dreadful. Like, this man has, as I wrote in GQ, the emotional intelligence of the Batman. Like, get him out of here. <laughs> he seems perfect for The Bachelor. I mean, I mean he, was, he was certainly perfect for entertainment and very, very bad at, like, the task of finding a partner, which I can see you could argue is, like, now the secondary purpose of The Bachelor to entertainment, and that's fine. I'm just saying it caused me to yell at my television a lot. <laughs> Well, and I, I asked you about that because you you still write articles like that for for GQ, but uh, you also obviously cover uh, much more serious issues with the appeal when it comes to criminal justice. Um, is that weird when you go to parties and and like you are like, hey, you know, I uh, I write about like uh, why you know people are are getting put in prison for small marijuana charges, and also uh, Peter from The Bachelor. Yeah, it's a, it is a tough like elevator pitch to be like, I'm working on stories that will help deconstruct the mass incarceration crisis and also fantasy suites. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it gives me lots of different um, lots of different uh, avenues into the conversation. I guess. Yeah. Well, well, let me let me uh, jump to a topic that was in the headlines for like, I don't know, 24, 48 hours. Uh, and, and, you know, it's since gone away, but, uh, a story out of Alabama about Nate Woods, um, who was, you know, and I'm, I don't want to mess up any of the details, but basically he was, uh, arrested for, 
uh, and put in prison, incarcerated for um, the murder of three police officers when it came out that he actually was not the person who pulled the trigger. Uh, the person who pulled the trigger is still in prison, still on death row, and admitted that he was the one who pulled the trigger. Nate Woods didn't know about it. It was a spontaneous uh, kind of you know shooting that happened, and um, you know despite appeals from uh, families of the the police officers, from uh, Martin Luther King the Third, um, and and a, just a big outcrying on on a public level. Uh, the governor, Kay Ivey of Alabama, didn't do anything about it, and the the um, execution ended up happening. Can you just talk? I mean, to me, I, I wanted to start with that just because obviously it was a story in the headlines, but it just goes to how absurd I feel like the criminal justice can, system can be. Um, and certainly it's different, it feels like, in different states. Um, can you just talk a little bit about maybe even that situation and just why, why, why is that even, how does that happen in Alabama, but it doesn't happen in a place like California? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a good question. So there's, you're right. Every state has very different criminal laws and that's sort of informed by, you know, each state's unique history and Alabama, like many states throughout the deep South has, uh, particularly draconian uh, punitive policies uh, in place with respect to crimes like these. So, for example, yeah, the uh, Nathaniel Woods' co-defendant said that he wasn't the one who pulled the trigger, that there wasn't some kind of grand plot, that when the police came in, Nathaniel was, was actively trying to surrender. Uh, in Alabama, there's... Uh, uh, you do not have to have a unanimous recommendation of a death sentence. Uh, so the jury recommended a death sentence by a 10 to 2 vote, um, but the judge upheld it. Alabama is the only state left in the union, uh, left in the union, like I'm a Civil War historian. What was that? Uh, <laughs> Alabama is the only state uh, in the United States where someone can be sentenced to die by a non unanimous jury verdict. Um, you know, again, Nathaniel Woods didn't pull the trigger, but the there's a there's a rule called the felony murder rule where if you commit a murder in the course of the commission of a different felony, uh, you can be charged with that. So even though he didn't actually kill anybody, he's still treated as a murderer. And it's rules like these that sort of combine together, that synthesize together uh, to make it so that the criminal legal system in a place like Alabama uh, can put Nathaniel Woods to death for it. Yeah. And I think you, you know, you mentioned something that I thought was really important, which is like these draconian laws um, that I feel like a lot of the, certainly the the average person really doesn't know anything about. Something that I think that, that maybe average Americans also don't understand is what happens in prisons and misconceptions about prisoners themselves. Like, can you just touch on some of the things that are maybe the common misconceptions that average people have around uh, prisoners and and prison itself. Yeah, I would I would sort of break it down into three different categories. First, I think there's this misconception that people who are incarcerated are dangerous, and that's why they're incarcerated there. There's 2.3 million people incarcerated in America. It's 500 percent increase over four decades. Three out of four people's in 
who are in jail haven't been convicted of any crime. Um, that's a ton of people who are just languishing inside, uh, oftentimes because they can't afford to post bail and get out. Um, violent crime rates are at their lowest rates in decades. People are safer. There should be less incarceration. We should be moving people out of jails and using that money elsewhere. Like, this should be exciting. This should be something that we're, we're, we're happy to see and we're happy to change. But still in many places, it's that sort of tough-on-crime, law-and-order ethos that, that wins out politically. And, and what do you uh, – th- sorry, just to jump in there. Like, what do you – th- what do you think about when it comes to like getting away from like any legal stuff? Like why, why does that tough on crime motto seem to appeal to folks like U S citizens still? Because is, I mean, it's certainly like a line that you hear a lot of Republicans like Trump, you know, like to use, but why, why do you think that's appealing just to the average person? Um, first of all, I think the, the media plays a significant role in this. Uh, violent crime rates, again, are at their lowest rates in decades, but individual violent crimes still earn a lot of media coverage. Uh, there's there's a reason true, po- uh, true crime podcasts are so popular. Like People eat those up, and it creates this perception that we are sort of constantly in danger of violent crime, and it's, it discourages people who I know you focus to, um, or you focus in the past and in, in some of your writing with like some of the things that, that kind of really contribute to our mass incarceration crisis that we have, right. When it comes to like low level crimes, if you will, you know, and I know you read it, I read an article you wrote recently about, uh, how witness IDs send innocent, uh, people to prison. What are some of like the grossest injustices that you feel like happen way too frequently um, to innocent people, or or just people who are uh, aren't committing serious crimes, but they're they're in there serving time? Yeah, so we touched on this a little bit earlier, but like bail, uh, yeah. I cannot emphasize this enough: cash bail. So, so in in states with bail systems uh, where judges don't consider a defendant's ability to repay. Uh, People sit in jail not necessarily because they're dangerous or they're a threat to society, but because they just can't afford to get out. Yeah. Um, and you know, if you so if you get picked up for for drug possession, like, and you can't afford to post a couple thousand dollars bail, you just sit there. You can lose your home, you can lose your job, you can lose custody of your kids. Um, it is. The purpose of bail is to get people to return to court, uh, but but in places that use cash bail systems, like you're not you're not actually considering whether it's having that effect. It's just effectively adding on to the punishment of somebody who's legally innocent, someone who hasn't been convicted of a crime. Today's podcast is brought to you by Steakum Frozen Beef Slices. We put the um in amazing. Don't take it from us. Listen to what actual satisfied customers have said. Our first review is from Deidre, who says, 
absolutely horrible. Actually can't believe people consume this. It tastes like meat mixed with cardboard. No, thank you, Deidre. And here's one from Amanda. This stuff is greasy, crumbly, and I really can't describe the smell and flavor other than terrible and overpowering. I made these a week ago and find myself cringing every time I think about them. So true, girlfriend, so true. And finally, if you're not already convinced, listen to Stiz2003 who writes, this is worse than the McDonald's pink slime. It's basically the garbage from butchering beef. The horrid taste of it talked to me all night. Well, who doesn't love to be talked to all night? If you ask us, that's a product that cares. Steakum, filling your heart with love and heavily processed animal fat, but mostly love. But I believe this is a start. The future is coming. Humanity is young and we are destined for something because man, this is amazing. Life is well worth praising. Anybody stop and look inside a flower lately? Take a moment to think. In fact, turn off this song if you feel quiet and still. How vulnerable are prisoners and and those who work in prisons at contracting the coronavirus? Prisons and jails, incarcerated people are living in really tight quarters and in places where uh, social distancing space is not something that's ever prioritized, right? Um, and it's not a, it's also not a place that um, is particularly invested in treating the people who are incarcerated there with like. <laughs> the utmost care and respect. Um, and I think you're seeing that across the country. Uh, basically, the, the title of the place with the most COVID-19 cases connected to it is just sort of ping-ponging from prison to prison. You know, at first, it was the Cook County Jail in Chicago. Uh, as of today, it's a state prison, I believe, in Ohio. Uh, on the New York Times' database of the the biggest hotspots of the top 10, uh, six of them are correctional facilities. So we're really just seeing what a lot of advocates predicted at first, which was if this is a disease that is going to be spread uh, primarily among people who are living in close quarters, uh, who aren't able to take steps to protect themselves, uh, you're going to see just devastating outbreaks in prisons and jails. Here we are. How, how much of that is a policy decision, do you think? I mean, <laughs> how, much, how much time do you have, right, to discuss <laughs> this nation's epidemic of mass incarceration? Um, but, but I do think that, that the crisis has sort of provided an opportunity for us to sort of really interrogate some of the questions about why people are in prison, why we incarcerate them. Um, and it helps people sort of develop a new perspective on the idea of mass decarceration. Like, for example, um, a lot of politicians, uh, a lot of judges, even a lot of prosecutors have talked about the need to reduce the prison, uh, excuse me, reduce the populations of jails and prisons uh, in order to keep people inside safe. And, you know, there's sort of this very regressive, uh, tough-on-crime reaction to that. Oh, we can't let people, we can't just be letting people out of jail, out of prison. And, again, I think you have to interrogate, is, is that really true? Like, think, for example, about a, a, vulnerable, some, a medically vulnerable incarcerated person um, in his 60s or 70s, uh, you know, is perhaps immunocompromised, um, who is in there convicted for a crime that he committed when he was 20. Like, as a 
or a 70 year old person, like, is that really someone who it's important to be incarcerating? Is that someone who taxpayers should be paying to be incarcerated, uh, especially given the, uh, the threat to his well-being, to his safety, to his life? Like, your mileage may vary. I would answer no. Right, right. Do you, do you feel like one of the positive sides of this is that we have seen uh, folks being let out of prison? Who I mean, because I, I do feel like that has happened. It happened in Ohio. It's happened certainly in other parts of the world. And even in Mississippi, where I live now, is that for you something that you see are... Because I, I know that like this is depressing. Let's be honest. This is depressing shit. Like, is that something that you see as a positive to this? I mean, I don't know that I don't know that using language like the silver lining to the devastating pandemic is right to talk about. Uh, but but I do agree with you in general that like it's putting some of our uh, our collective policy decisions that were always short sighted and bad really in sharp relief and exposing just how just how damaging those have been. So, for example, uh, maybe two weeks ago. Um, the California Ju- Judicial Council issued an emergency order uh, setting bail at zero dollars for most misdemeanor and lower level felony offenses. You, if you are uh, uh, charged with one of those crimes, you do not have to uh, to pay to get out. And it's like, great, but now let's do this all the time. Why is this a temporary emergency measure? Right. Um, and I do, I do think that the the sort of pressing public safety imperative of reducing prison and jail populations is helping people understand a little bit more about these issues and about how they don't just matter in the context of the pandemic. And you, I just want to say one other thing that you alluded briefly to, which is that this isn't just about uh, people who are incarcerated in prisons and jails. Uh, there are staffers who work there, uh, who are there every day, who also don't always have um, access to personal protective equipment, uh, and who are also working in very tight quarters with folks. Uh, the state of California is tracking both uh, COVID-19 uh, cases in its incarcerated population and among its employees, uh, and the numbers are high on both. I think it's a hundred, a little over 120, 122 in prisons uh, and 92 staffers. And those people are going home every night uh, to their families. They're, you know, going shopping for groceries. Uh, so this this isn't just about people in uh, in facilities. It's about the communities outside uh, and the communities that they'll go home to as well. Right. Well, I mean, to me, you know, we, I, I get what you mean, like the silver lining in a pandemic. But I mean, at the same time, like we're in a fucking pandemic. Like it to me, it's it's this very clear line of like, this is reality folks. And like, how can we make our world better? And therefore I see the prison system as this microcosm of society in general. For example, uh, in Ohio today, you know, the, you mentioned Ohio, like uh, I think it's like 73% of inmates at this prison tested positive. That's an incredibly high number. But the reason why that's so high is because everybody was able to be tested, including folks who worked there. And so it's it's kind of one of those things, like I'm sitting there myself going, like I haven't been tested, like I don't have any symptoms, you know, but because there are a lot of people in that prison who were asymptomatic, like that is, it's actually like this weird, you know, 
small situation, I feel like we can glean a lot from. I mean, the other example I see is like uh, there was a slaughterhouse. You may have heard about this, Jay, where we're, um, you know, in South Dakota, where a bunch of folks were, were tested positive for this. And a lot of them are, I think, um, I, I don't want to misstate facts, but I think they're migrant workers. Um, and, you know, that those are people who are very vulnerable to these types of things. We've, we've seen time and time again that like black and brown populations who have to be, you know, who are necessary workers at this time, um, you know, are getting exposed to this stuff. So I see all that just because a, I need to get some shit off my chest, but B, how much do you, like, how much do you feel like the prison system, I mean, covering it just in general, regardless of the pandemic is a microcosm of our society at large, or am I just kind of going off? <laughs> no, I, I, like, I see what you mean there. We see a lot of the, the same disparities to to access in the prison systems uh, that we see, to your point, in society at large. Like, there's another example uh, that you just reminded me of. Um, over the weekend, uh, on Friday, the California Department of Corrections, their statewide total... For, uh, for incarcerated people with COVID-19 was at 79. Wow. And on Saturday, Saturday was the 18th, yeah, on Saturday it jumped to 115. Mm-hmm. And their, their press release said, you know, we anticipated the spike in results due to mass testing of people at, uh, at this prison in L.A. County. We, we knew this was coming, no big deal. And I just thought, well, no, it's still a big deal. Those people had COVID-19 before you tested them. And the only reason you know about it is because you're finally getting tested up there. Uh, so, yeah, certainly the same sort of limited access to testing, the same slow rollout of resources that we're seeing um, in non-incarceration settings uh, are, are affecting and hurting people who are inside, too. And I just think there's a basic argument to be made that when, when you are in the care in the custody of the state like you are incarcerated but the state is responsible for your well-being for protecting you now i think we can agree that for a host of reasons uh, prisons and jails fail that test but that's the theory of it right and seeing people behind bars disproportionately getting sick disproportionately dying from this really lays bare just how flawed and brutal and cruel the system has always been for people at home listening to this, how can they help? How can they be a part of the solution? Um, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but just like when you when you hear the news, uh, when you hear people discuss, you know, releasing people from jail, releasing people from prison, really interrogate sort of your reaction to that. And if you if that strikes you as as something that is fearful or negative, really think about why. Um, sort of some, uh, again, a lot of those people who are in there whose lives are disproportionately at risk right now are not quote unquote threats to society by any stretch of the imagination. There's no reason to keep them in there during a pandemic, but also there's no reason to keep them in there not during a pandemic. Uh, I think you could say something similar about the jurisdictions that are doing away with bail, um, or that are doing away with cash bail, excuse me. Like, uh, uh, it's good that we're not having people cycling in and out of jails, um, you know, for a couple days at a time until they can post bail. But we shouldn't be doing that in the first place. 
Uh, and I, I think there's just sort of this, there's a really easy knee-jerk reaction for people to have about, you know, dangerous people are in prisons and jails and letting them out uh, is the government not doing its job. And I would just encourage people to, to think about it differently, to think about that as the government doing the responsible and the humane thing. Uh, we should be appreciative of the judges, the politicians, uh, the, the public defenders, and especially the prosecutors. You know, it's their job to, to you know, enforce the law in theory, to put people in prisons and jails. And there are a lot of prosecutors right now who are taking a strong moral stand about that. Uh, and I think we should be respectful of that. We should be grateful for that. On a personal level, what drew you to covering um, our prison system, our criminal justice system? What, what got you involved and why do you care? Um, so much of the inequity and inequality that we see in American society at large, uh, prisons and jails, the criminal legal system more broadly, um, is a microcosm of that. It has a disproportionate income, excuse me, <laughs> disproportionate impact uh, on people of color. It has a disproportionate impact on lower income people, uh, on people with less education, less resources. And the amount of time and money and resources that we spend locking people up and uh, creating this stigma that attaches people, attaches to people for the rest of their life uh, is unconscionable. Uh, there's so much that we should be investing uh, in folks in ways that do not require uh, putting people behind bars and throwing away the key. Do you think Peter from The Bachelor should serve any time for his performance on the show and just as a human being? <laughs> I don't know if uh, if he should go to to prison necessarily. That might be a bit too far, but like, I definitely just think that sort of as a personal matter, he should sit by himself in a room and look at the wall and just like think about what he's done and the choices he's made that brought him to this point. Uh, I think that would really be good for him. I'm gonna give, gonna give, uh, gonna make make sure he serves a little solitary. Yeah, a little, a little like self-imposed uh, time for self-reflection would be good. Well, Jay, thanks so much for for uh, talking to me about criminal justice reform and and you know spreading the word and what you guys are doing over at the Appeal is is really cool. I highly suggest uh, if you're listening to this podcast right now. Uh, click over and, and check out the appeal and, and all the great work you guys are doing. Um, lastly, just if you can just tell people a little bit about where they can find what you're doing, whether it's uh, writing about the bachelor or writing about uh, mass incarceration, and uh, yeah, tell people where they can find you, Jay. Yeah, so you can find uh, me and my colleagues who are covering these issues at, uh, at the appeal. That's theappeal.org. Uh, you can find my occasional uh, bachelor musings uh, on GQ, and you can find all of my other takes that no one will pay me for yet uh, on, twi <laughs> on Twitter. I'm at first name, last name, J-A-Y Willis. Awesome. Jay, thanks so much uh, for being on the podcast, and uh, hope to talk with you soon. Thanks for having me, man. Always a pleasure.